You're listening to the Names Not Numbers podcast, the annual ideas festival produced by Editorial Intelligence. Culture in history. Can the past predict the future? I'm Kirsty Lang. I'm a BBC broadcaster. I present a programme on Radio 4 called Front Row, which is a cultural programme. Um, and uh, I will be chairing this uh, session this morning. Very nice to see such a good turnout after a late night. I understand there was late night singing in the several places last night. Um, so uh, I hope you all enjoyed yourself and you're up for discussing, <laughs> discussing can the past predict the future culture in history at this early hour of the morning? Um, and I hope you are, because we're uh, counting on some audience participation and some good questions. Let me introduce uh, my panel to start with. Um, Orlando Feige is Professor of History at Birkbeck College, University of London. He is also the author, uh, amongst other books, of The Whisperers, Private Life in Stalin's Russia, uh, The People's Tragedy, The Russian Revolution, and Natasha's Dance, A Cultural uh, History of Russia, and indeed The Crimean War, a history, topical at the moment. He is also working uh, on... Uh, a new project uh, of a cultural history of 19th century Europe, which we will be discussing. Kate Maltby is a literary critic with a classics background, currently researching a PhD on the private writings of Elizabeth I. She's also head of publications for Bright Blue, the think tank dedicated to the Tory modernisation agenda. Kate blogs regularly for The Telegraph on politics, international affairs and the arts, and she also works as a theatre critic. Stephen Barber... Group Managing Director and Group Head of Communications at the Pictet Group. Uh, Stephen is responsible for all of Pictet's external publications, press and public affairs, and so on. And he runs the leading global photography prize, which we'll be talking about this morning, the pre-Pictet, whose subject uh, is sustainability. So let me start uh, with uh, you, Orlando, and the subject uh, of your new book. Given that we live in an age where culture is increasingly globalised so that you can have a a pop song in South Korea becoming a worldwide hit through YouTube. What can we learn uh, from from the 19th century, which I think you believe is really the first age of cultural globalisation? Yeah, I think I would say that. And I think the key to it is the railways, which probably had as big an impact on the 19th century European world as the internet is having on our own now. So... There's quite a parallel to be drawn, and perhaps we shouldn't see the globalisation we're going through culturally now as that exceptional. And the key to understanding how that works, I think, in the 19th century, in internationalising markets, which is something Marx himself wrote about in Communist Manifesto. He said, just as you're going to get the internationalisation of commodities, so intellectual creations will cross borders, we will get something which Goethe had called a world literature developing. And I think that does happen by the end of the 19th century. And the key to how that happens is money. It's money driving and expanding markets across borders. And if you look at... If you don't read the biographies of great composers and artists and writers, which are mainly about their intellectual lives, if you read their writings, their letters and their diaries, they're actually nearly all about money. It's money that obsesses them. How are they going to make more money? How are they going to become independent? And what's remarkable about the railway age is at a time when the states are releasing their controls over the theatre in particular and commercial markets are developing in so many spheres of intellectual endeavour, artists are beginning to milk the markets. I mean, I think Maya Beer and Verdi are just fantastic business, among the part from anything else, working out how to make grand opera work, not just by the, the works themselves as spectacles, and Maya Beer was great at marketing, he was great at delaying um, a premiere, he was great at creating controversies to keep an interest in, or in a work going, but he was, they were also, Maya Beer and Verdi, great at merchandising. So they were, they were, they were making probably more money out of um, sales of sheet music, of um, of their popular arias for voice and piano, as they were from the royalties of performances. 
So I think if you look at money, you can see how, how the, the markets do become internationalised. And I think the other thing about this is that a, so I think what's emerging in the 19th century is a sort of canon of great works so that along with globalisation, as we know all too well now, you have standardisation. You have, perhaps to a certain extent, homogenization. Because if something works commercially, then everyone's beginning to copy it. You have, um, of course, you have the recognition of the musical genius. So you have the cult of Beethoven and you have suddenly old works being held up as certainly in concert repertoire, for example, you must have increasingly one major symphonic work in the second half. Otherwise, before that, it had always been a bit of a miscellany. Um, but at the same time, you have... You know, if, if someone makes a success of... I mean, I think Victor Hugo is a good example of someone who sort of got a format. Zola... Again, the social novel, he got a format, and suddenly all publishers around the world are looking for the Brazilian Zola or whatever. So everyone's copying it. And it's a branding. It's a brand, it's a brand. And, and Victor Hugo, and especially Zola, they really milked their brand. I mean, they, 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 uh, Zola was uh, selling his copy to newspapers and, and periodicals around the world and then recycling them for other places um, and living off the brand. So I think so, in, in so many of these things that we think of as new, you know, how do you make money out of a creative work? How do you relate your uh, creative talents and, and income to marketing possibilities? So many of those questions were actually faced, I think, for the first time in that 19th century railway age. And we have Dickens, of course, going, going round, don't we, doing huge public readings and, and serialisation. Absolutely. And he's yeah. a massive brand. That's right. And they, in a sense, the, the branding of the of the writer becomes as important to the income producing as the publishing of the work because people go to see Dickens, read, and they do for Victor Hugo as well. So the celebrity status, which is something, you know, Verdi has in spades or Meyerbeer to a lesser extent, but, I mean, others are cultivating a... Con I mean, Liszt does it famously on his concert tours. He's such an extravagant, flamboyant personality. He's consciously... Uh, beefing up his, you know, sort of colourful celebrity uh, status to, to make more money. Now, it's worth remembering in this day and age where you often hear writers complaining that they have to sort of perform at live events, a bit like Orlando's doing now, <laughs> or at literary festivals, and that that wasn't the case in the past. And then, of course, you know, from what you're saying, of course, it was the case in, in the 19th century already. Well, well f a few could survive. I mean, Brahms was not virtuoso. He was not... A um, uh, a touring performer, but he was probably the first composer to live, it seems, almost ex exclusively and quite well from the royalties, performance royalties of his of his works. Um, but that was, I think, quite exceptional. I mean, Berlioz, only a little bit earlier, you know, as we all know, he, he had to make a living out of music criticism, writing all the time just to give himself a bit of money uh, and time to compose. Kate, let me turn uh, to you, because, of course, uh, we're going to go back a little bit uh, earlier now to Elizabethan times, where we had this extraordinary flowering of, uh, of, of, of culture, and theatre in particular. And to, to what extent would you say uh, what we have today in terms of theatre um, is, is, is still very much dictated by what came about in, 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 in that era? Um, well, the first thing I would say to Orlando's point about travel and international theatre, which is still very much the case today, is that Shakespeare's theatre was a magnet for tourists. And as a historian, if you want to find out what the English thought about Shakespeare's plays, you have to ask a German, because uh, they're the ones who wrote Letters Home. Um, in, in reverse, uh, for, for the English, international theatre was something that you travelled, that you wrote home about in other countries. They're fascinated by Spanish theatre. There they, are all these English young men who go to Spain in the 1590s and discover that the Spanish theatre has actresses on stage, the whores. Um, whereas, of course, in Britain, you'd only have, you, you only had boys on stage. Um, but one of the things that we're beginning to learn about the Elizabethan theatre that scholars are beginning to dig up is that there are these huge numbers of plays that are written by women and that were only performed privately. 
and, and it's very important to remember that there's this entire theatre circuit that's going on in the age of, of Shakespeare that's happening in aristocratic homes that isn't commercial and that is dominated by very young, very educated women who are writing plays. Now, my problem as a feminist is they're not as good. They're, they're, they, they're simply not. They don't have ambiguity. They don't have moral dilemma. Um, and feminists argue, try to compare this endlessly and look at, look at why. Or why are these, these plays so boring? Why is Shakespeare so exciting? And, of course, the capitalist in me would say, in contrast to Orlando, that they're not writing for money. They're writing for their friends. Um, there isn't blood. There isn't sex. There isn't the commercial imperative. And to me, that's what separates those aristocratic isn't it, isn't it also because they're very sheltered as well? They're not as exposed to they're, life. they're not as exposed, although they have, they have more of a sense of the intellectual life than you would expect. I mean, some of them are actually taken to the theatre in London. They don't just live in these aristocratic houses where their women go to the Globe. Um, they have tutors who who come down from Cambridge and then enter them into their soirees. They have and they have literary house parties. It's a great age for the literary house party. It's great fun. I'm interested by what you say about uh, 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 we we know what we know about Shakespeare from tourists because of course now you go to the Globe Theatre and sort of half the audience really are sort of French school group Absolutely. or whatever. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, to what extent have audiences changes because it changed? Because isn't I mean aren't we now? really see theatre as quite an elite art form. Yes, and it's certainly true that, sh that Shakespeare's theatre was a popular art form. In fact, I think it largely uh, drew out of, it grew out of the great craze for going to see the public law courts. I mean, in the 1570s, the 1560s, sort of 20 years before Shakespeare, all of these young men, most of whom were start, uh, anyone middle class had to study law, would go and get drunk watching other people performing. Um, when it comes to, sorry, tourists and... I think that's something that, of course, we have very much in common today. That, and actually, when you look at what the modern globe is doing, the recreation of the globe, one of the things I think is quite sad about that is they've now recreated a class division in their audiences. Has anyone here been to the indoor theatre that has just been opened at the globe? Isn't it great? It's absolutely wonderful. And it's a recreation of these sort of private spaces, not quite aristocratic homes, but private theatres that were run that you sort of had to be a member of. Um, and actually, I found a lot of the plays there far more exciting and far more interesting than a lot of what goes on in that outdoor space. But if you look around, the tickets are like gold dust because there are only 230 seats in that space. And that was true back in the day. That was true back in the 1590s. The Globe can host, I think, the current Globe can host 2,000 people. Tickets are cheaper. Um, people think it's fun. It's a tourist event. There is a replication going on now in that space between the two types of audiences that we used to have. So how different would the experience of going to the Globe have been back then compared to now? Um, well, you wouldn't have had posh people slumming it, uh, pretending to be groundlings because they think it's all part of the experience. If you could afford a seat, you would darn well get a seat. <laughs> and that is what I recommend to everyone else who goes to the Globe nowadays. I'm kind of with them on that one. Yes. Um, <laughs> But, but the sense that um, it's easy to get distracted, that people were there, I think people really did go to the Globe as part of doing London, as well as being part of the regular audience. And I'm afraid I think that's very true of the way that tourists treat theatre today. Stephen Barber, photography uh, is the art form that you're going to talk about. Obviously, photography, is, it, it, compared to what, what the other cultural forms we've been discussing, is, 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 is a far newer form, but it has had gone through tremendous change, hasn't it, in its short history because of technology? Well, when, when uh, we first uh, conceived the, this uh, Global Photography Prize, the Pre-Pictet, we had to decide whether, how, what sort of genre we wanted to uh, aim for, or uh, should we define it? And most photography prizes are limited to, say, photojournalism or documentary or, 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 or uh, landscape, portraits, that sort of thing. And um, we decided that we n would not uh, limit it. We would accept all genres. But actually, when you look at that, um, that spectrum from, if you like, what we consider to be pure photojournalism at one end and conceptual photography at the other, it's very difficult to define or to, to say where, where are the boundaries. And a documentary um, is, can fall anywhere between that. In, on the one hand, I mean, do documentary is 
not simply... Um, well, documentary is defined by what it is not. It's defined as non-fiction, if you like, but it's not defined by what it is. And we think of documentary as just simply recording the truth as, as um, some kind of objective truth. Um, but the closer you look at that, the more you see that that's not the case at all. And if... Um, but just going back a little bit into the, the 20th century history of um, photography, I mean, documentary early, going, coming back to these, the 19th century and what um, Orlando, you were mentioning, Dickens, Mayhew and so on, that uh, it was a desire for social change and rose up as a, a tool of, of the left, if you like. So it's seen as a very democratic art. Yes, yes, yes. And, and um, but that's... That's 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 great, and 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 the intellectuals of the left wanted to to give ordinary people a voice um, to speak to each other by 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 and to bypass, if you like, the um, what I call the monolithic mediators. But and um, I'm interested sorry. by I'm interested why you say about about they saw documentary as recording the truth because of course now we know with technological change mm. that our ability to manipulate the image mm. is so huge. Does mm. that change the way we see photography now? Well, I think that I, one one of the, the big shift in the last fifteen or twenty years, and if I refer to uh, Luc Delahaye, who who won our prize last year, he he's a French photojournalist uh, and. About around sometime in the early 2000s, he radically shifted from just recording, taking photographs, to manipulating the images that he took. And his, his, the series for which he won is um, the, each image is composed of dozens, if not hundreds, of different photographs. In order, and his aim is to, if you like, achieve a, a higher truth, something that's. More. So he's sort of he's photoshopping different images. If you want to put it, if you want to put it sort of crudely, <laughs> yes. But but hi, these these he might produce one or two works in a year. I mean, he takes six months to working on one image. But his and I think of uh, um, one and these are huge images of maybe three meters by two meters, and they are produced to, as you say, to hold the wall, not to. Hold the eye, in a sense, and they're incredibly detailed. But then there's a there's Can a looter. Well, there's a looter who is. I'll give you two examples. Mm. There's a looter who is who is um, fleeing um, a, a, a a scene in from Haiti after after the hurricane, and um, it's it's not a single photograph. It's not a a a, a um, decisive moment of Cartier-Bresson, but it's. In his eyes, it depicts a, a higher, greater truth than of a single photograph. Of what he's seen yeah. over that period. There's of another. There's another one which is three or four meters wide and a meter high, which is of uh, supposedly of an OPEC meeting. And but the first thing you see when you look at it, you say this is this is like um, a sort of riotous Last Supper, where and it's composed of hundreds and hundreds of images. But and and yet still today. We, I think, um, I mean, perhaps if I can talk about our generation, I mean, the sort of the digital immigrants. I mean, we, we look at that and we, I mean, I, you watch people go around the exhibition. They think it's a real, that amazing photograph of the OPEC meeting. And when you say, well, actually, it's composed of hundreds and hundreds of images, they, they seem disappointed a bit as if it's, but it's art. And it's depicting something that's more than just that photograph. Now, Ask your teenage daughters or, 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 or sons and you'll show them something which you think is... And they'll say, oh, it's photoshopped. They, they don't, they're accustomed to reading images much less literally than, than we are. Yeah, but they, I think, yeah, they don't have the documentary assumption that yeah. our generation mm. has. But I think that just to wrap, mm. wrap that up, I think, I mean, it's in the sense of can history inform today's culture, we're, we're going back to, if you like... Um, I mean, did let, we're going back, back to back to the earliest art and literature, if you like? I mean, did Homer's Wars ever take place? But they themselves, you're looking very sceptical, Kate. But no, I'm saying they, they kind of probably did a bit. Well, they did a bit, but I mean, so did the OPEC meeting. You know? Yes, it's this, it's it's that same. And I mean, look, what about Goya's Disasters of War? I mean, is I mean, those that's kind of documentary, but it's. Mm -hmm. Not simply a depiction of what he saw, even though he calls 
some of his pictures. He calls one, you know, what I saw, the truth. One cannot look at this. And also we have an increasing number of contemporary photographers referring back to old masters and painting, painters, Vermeer and so on, and, 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 and using the same techniques of light and so on in their photographs that they used in their oil paintings. Well, there was another of the shortlist last year called Mohamed Barusa who has stages these scenes from, of imaginary riots in Paris. You look at it, you think it's a real thing, but actually it's... It's, it's based on a photograph, by, a, a, a painting by Delacroix, the raft of the Medusa. So these are all references back to earlier, earlier culture. Kate, may I just ask, I'm fascinated by the idea of the documentary, of, by documentary photography as democratic, um, and, and what you're talking about, the left claiming it. Do you think that that democratisation is dead. I'm asking because, I, I mean, I recently spent time with uh, Kurdish distance on the Syrian-Turkish border who are teaching their people to take photographs of their existence and who are teaching uh, Damari gypsy populations who aren't recognised by the Turkish government. Uh, gypsy is not necessarily the technical term, but Damari people, to record their existence and re record their transit and refugee experience. And, of course, has the era of Photoshop taken that tool away from them? Are they forever suspect? No. No, not at all. Not at all. I think that I think that actually that wasn't the uh, talking about no. documentary as a as a as a tool of the left. I mean that that shade. I mean, if I can give you a couple of quotes, mm. but um, the there's a famous um, series by by Walker Evans called the Alabama Sharecroppers, in which uh, he in the forward, and this is such a, such a brilliant quote, I have to get, by James Agee. He says, this is 1941, he says, who are you who will read these words, study these photographs, and through what cause and by what chance and for what purpose and by what right do you qualify to, and what will you do about it? I mean, that's, that's photography, documentary as a tool of the, so, for social change. But a few years later, and this is uh, a critic writing of uh, Wienergrad, he says uh, the best of his photographs were not illustrating what he knew or what he had known, but were new knowledge. And that's so uh, it's that's the democracy, yeah. pure documentary shading into into art and and back again. And but today with the internet, there's um, photographers. Anybody who takes a photograph think, needs to think of themselves not as photographers but as, as publishers, if you like. And, and you know, there's that new democratisation, but who's, who's to mediate, as I said? Who is to distinguish among all these voices? But it does give that voice, if you like, to the people that the early um, left social, for social change... Wanted, but they have to have some access really to the achieved. technology. Yes, they do. But, and in the 19th, but I mean, look at Twitter and Turkey yeah, today. Yeah, and in the 19th century, Orlando, presumably the, the, the novel was the art form of social change, was it? Yes, and it in many ways was influenced by the advent of photography as, as a new challenge, that you had to have a new type of realism. Um, and it, yes, had to enter into the lives of ordinary people. So I think, you know, already with George Eliot and so on, it's clearly got a more democratic sort of characterisation, at least. Um, and the novel, yes, does carry that, I think, and um, is probably, of all the art forms of, that we now think of as high art, the one that would be most accessible in terms of publication in... In, in, in the penny press and um, popularised in abridged forms um, to create, yes, some, something of a canon that, that would be a democratising force, if only by virtue of being read in schools, which is the other great, you know, probably along with photography and, the, and, the, and those who document reality, the, the great democratising force of the 19th century, along with the railways, that you have public libraries and you have schools spreading a, a, um, a, a curricula, a curricula of, of, of a national literature. What, case, at what point does theatre become to be seen as a, as a tool of social change? Oh gosh, probably not until, you know, the 19th century yeah. at least. Um, it's it is considered, of course, very dangerous in the 16th century, and the Puritans are always trying to shut it down. Um, not least of all, not least because um, 
of the, the contagion and of the, there's this obsession with the idea that you'll get disease uh, by going to the theatre. But if you're a Puritan preacher, you'll explain that this is because you shouldn't have been, it's sinful to go to the theatre at all, so no wonder everyone gets ill afterwards. Um, and if you do go to the Night of the Burning Pestle, which is on at the Globe at the moment in the indoor theatre, that's a play all about um, sexual diseases. Uh, the, the idea of the burning pestle is the burning penis, which you get um, if you've got syphilis. Um, but theatre theater is very dangerous in the 16th century, but no, I don't think actually social change emerges there. Now, it's a, uh, I'm going to open up to the audience quite, uh, in a moment, but I, I, I want to put this to, to, to all the panel. It is an oft-repeated maxim that there are only seven stories under the sun, which we uh, repeat endlessly. Um, uh, uh, rubbish, Orlando? Or no, no, it's well documented by uh, folklorists who studied folk tales, and um, there are, yeah, probably only seven with variations. Um, I'm sure folklorists argue over the variations and numbers, but yes, there is a standard form, isn't there? So I suppose there are things that work, and they get reintroduced in different contexts to be more successful at different times, and um, that 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 is. You know, a constant cycle, um, and in, so in that sense, I think you know what's more interesting is well, what what che- why is there suddenly in the 1840s and 50s a booming interest in historical dramas, which translates into grand opera? Why? Why suddenly does everyone want history on stage, whereas before they had you know the boudoir opera or whatever it was that Rossini was turning out? So. That's surely something to do with changes in society, revolutions, um, greater interconnectedness, a greater sense of national identity because of people discovering history and people making history in 1848 and so on. Surely that's something to do with with the context that informs the artists who then think, well, actually, I could make more money by by putting this on stage than I could by doing the old stuff. Um, So there's a constant circularity between... The, you know the, the, re- the production of those stories and their variations and the res- reception of those stories in a market. Stephen, you got a theory on this? I don't have a theory. <laughs> you don't. That's no. right, Kate. Um, of course, there's truth in it. Um, and again, this has been well documented by folklorists. King Lear actually crops up as a Hungarian folk tale. Um, and there's very little evidence that there's circulation of those stories, you know, through commerce or, commerce or trade. The, I, the idea of the king who splits his kingdom between three daughters and gets it wrong is standard. In Hungary, actually, the Cordelia figure doesn't say nothing. I love you like nothing. She says, I love you like everyone loves salt. And he is utterly offended. How could, how could my love be as trivial as salt? And at the end, having broken his heart and lost his daughter, his daughter's wonderful husband, who has rescued her, invites him in disguise to a banquet where no drop of salt has been used in the food. And, of course, he spits the whole thing out and says, how could you possibly have served me a banquet without salt? And they say, well, I hear you cut your daughter off for, for not loving salt. So these things are universal. Um, what I would say is... Um, that obviously, what's exciting about stories is the way in which those seven types are chopped up and, and, re- and changed about, and I'm not sure there are seven types. But I'm also interested in our obsessive need to catalogue those types. I mean, Longinus did it in antiquity. Um, the Greeks talk about genre and they talk about story type. The 19th century was full of people, and not just the Grimm's, full of folklorists who were obsessively trying to... You get these massive family trees of stories that are very complicated, and it's a sort of Linnaean scientific classification system. To me, that's not how literature works, but I think our urge to make it scientific Mm. is fascinating. I would say, just maybe... Mm. But I'm 20 pages from the end of a 700-page biography of Wagner... It's a German biography, but it's in which it's a almost oh, it's a psychological. It'd be wrong to have a short biography. Well, it's a psychological. <laughs> it's, it's 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 it focuses on his, psycho- his psychology and of his plays and his operas and his his own. And it each one of his works is he, he this this author um, investigates the source of those stories and the tales, and they go back and back and back, and there's no. Almost no beginning. I mean, many go back to 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 back to Oedipus and so on. But but um, even in the nineteenth century, it's the, the the source that you might think was actually the source of Tannhäuser, then is found somewhere else, which is found somewhere else. And exactly. and Absolutely. and so he's going back to um, and. Uh, He's going back to earlier works, but he's recreating them. So, Orlando, does this mean there's nothing new under the sun? We are just destined as a race to repeat ourselves endlessly in different forms when it comes to stories. 
Yes, but <laughs> why that can be interesting. I mean, the repetitions and how you repeat uh, uh, what, uh, what keeps us going, because there's always another retelling, right? OK, I'd like to open it up to the audience. There are roving mics, so stick your hand up. I know it's early in the morning. Yes, Ed, at the back there. Uh, just a quick observation and then a question. The observation is, I think we buried the lead here a little bit because Stephen just sounded the death knell for the idea of objective truth in photography, um, which we sort of skipped over and went, oh, yes, of course, there's no truth in photography. <laughs> you know, we still read a newspaper sometimes and there is a photograph on the front page which we take seriously as being a representation of something that happened somewhere we don't know about. Um, I would like to hear a little bit more about how you feel about journalism, uh, you know, photojournalism. And the question is, in this great democratisation of uh, the written word and image making and what have you, uh, do we still think that the best stuff is still done by professionals, people who are paid to make images and write words, or do we feel that that no longer matters? Um, that feels like quite an important question to a pref professional writer. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, can we can we just start actually with the with the point about 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 photojournalism um, uh, that there is still an objective truth? Yes, of, co of, of, of course there is. Yes, absolutely. But uh, I I don't think uh, I don't think I was saying that there's it's, you can no longer trust any image. I think we're um, but we're becoming accustomed to reading images less literally. And when we see um, a photo, I, look. You see a photograph in the in the in the Times. You don't think that's been photoshopped. I mean, there is there are some. There we go. No, no. I'm not, that's look the stat, look the, the, the principles and ethics mm. of, of 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 newspaper journalism still exist. That's why um, we I think we trust those mediators more more than we do what we find on the internet that's not dot-mediated. There are no um, validators there. And that, that's the big question, I think, is who, having got rid of the... I mean, having, having, having got rid of the, 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 the validators, we suddenly find that we need them again. But who are, who are they so, to be? Which brings us on to, 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 to the question, which is that, is, is that there, there is still the role for the professional, then? I, I believe so. Absolutely, yes, of course. That's why, I mean, when... I mean, when I when I when I look at Twitter, there are a few people, there are a few um, tweeters who I trust because they are. Um, what are they doing? They're, I mean, they're 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 curating, if you like, they're selecting and saying that these certain things are look worth reading, and you decide who you trust. But you know, they they are um, professional. Um, they are selecting for you. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Nobody, is there still a room for the professional writer? Absolutely. Um, this is partly the point I was making about Shakespeare's plays being commercial and these aristocratic young women's plays not being commercial, not having financial incentive. Um, and you have to be paid for what you do. And again, as a, young, as, a, as a young writer, I would fully admit that in the current economy, we will start working for free. Um, but if you're not being paid after a trial period of whatever you're doing, you shouldn't be doing it. Um, that's partly because editing is important, and editing has always been important in the written word. So the story I love about Virgil, which may or may not be true, but he, uh, you know, the Aeneid took 20 years to write, and he did that by sitting down every morning and writing 20 lines of Latin. And then every afternoon he condensed it into two lines. Um, and for me, a lot of that comes through the editing process, and that's about being a professional. Orlando. <laughs> um, yeah, well, I think the, the question of what professional training an artist needed was, in a sense, the great question that divided academies from free artists in the 19th century. And although there's not you know, an obvious qualification to being an artist, um, it, um, probably that r rules more now than, than ever. It's still that, that debate, I think, we're having that conversation that we have today, isn't it? That, and perhaps one of the reasons why I think a lot of people identify with the 19th century world um, is, is because, you know, th there's a sort of rigour of, of professional training behind their creation that people find more easy to relate to as professionals themselves, perhaps. I think certainly in the 19th century that was 
the, the basis of the cult of the, of the professional artists, not just that the middle classes could identify with them as entrepreneurs, but they could identify with their professionalism. So, the, I mean, you know, we, hear, we hear a, a, a lot of you know, justifiable complaints from, from writers in this day and age and, and journalists that we are expected to produce content for free because of the digital generation expects to find content for free. Are there any echoes of that in the 19th century? Sure, people are always uh, having to do stuff for free to make a make an entry. Well, I don't think that's changed at all. I mean, I think professions have always worked like that. That you, as Kate said, you do stuff for free until you get established. Like, nothing's new in that way. Next question. Um, good morning. I'm Chris Parry. Um, I'm a historian who makes his living by mm -hmm. um, forecasting the future for governments and banks. Um, can I just encourage the panel to actually ask, answer the exam question? Mm. <laughs> Um, because um, I've heard a lot of good erudite things about the past, but I've heard nothing about the actual title of this presentation. I dragged myself out of bed this morning to come and listen to it, so I'd like to hear some insight, if that's possible. Thanks very much. Don't mind everyone of these questions. So, the exam question is, culture and history, can the past predict the future? Um, Orlando. <laughs> um, in a word, no, but since you'd have to ask, um, answer it a little bit more than that in the exam... I suppose um, it, it can it can it can give you a sense of where the present is sort of fumbling in a, in a fumbling way moving, but it can't predict the future because there's always new technologies, and that's always what shifts shifts it on, doesn't it? Mm. So and technologies are the great geological shifters, um, and um, and and that 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 will always be. And so whatever you look for in the past as a parallel to the present is not going to really help you. Yes, I mean, I would actually take issue, Chris, with the fact that we haven't answered the question, because I would say that in our my very first question to Orlando about to what extent does the current globalisation of culture what it says is informed by the 19th century, that's precisely what we were answering. Well, no, I think the, the issue is that if you take specific instances in history in specific periods, you won't be able to predict the future. I would say you can't predict the future. I, I give my customers uh, a, set, a probability based assessments. Uh, the fact is, though, that human nature doesn't change in 2,000 years, the context does. Uh, but I'm afraid that taking uh, individual uh, trends that stretch out in the future from individual periods of history is wrong. Orlando's right in that respect. But the fact of life is, uh, history, as Mark Twain says, doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. And human nature, in relation to different contexts, actually reacts in a similar way. We're not different to the people Virgil or Longinus talked about uh, in, in physiological terms. So our reactions will be similar. But I get back to the point, you know, we've heard a lot about the past informing the future uh, the present, we haven't heard a lot about the future. I mean, I know my business, and I'm not going to mm. impose on the panel on this one, but the fact of life is, unless the past is prologue to the future, it has no use for us, actually, except in interpreting our own present lives. Um, so, I'm not going to ask the audience, why are you in business if you're not going to help us into the future? I think that's bollocks, if I can say so. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, we don't study history to help us into the future. We study history because we need to know our history and we need to have a memory as a society and we need to constantly renew our memory in order to question our values and see who we are. In a, in a nutshell, it can't help us predict the future, but it can help us understand the present, and that is just as important. Okay. Right. And can't it help us avoid making some of the same mistakes? Not that we do, but... No, the one important <laughs> thing about history is that we never learn from history. That's the point. But in that case, there would be no progress. It's not our fault. We try. But this is my point. Unless you use the past as prologue to the future, then you are wasting your time. Um, if you think about it, if you look at the Balkans, I've got a lot, of, a lot of experience in the Balkans, the whole of political discourse there is based on mythology, not on history. And unless you expose history, uh, then politics and, and the future of that place will rely simply on mythology. Uh, and that brings in extremism and all the other things that we've seen. Well, I'm, uh, with, I'm with Kate on this. I mean, I think you can... The past to understand the present and help you live in the present, but... Predicting the future is a mugs game. Yeah, I agree. And I, for years, for years, I was an investment manager, and, and the one thing you learn is that economic forecasts, financial, are completely, um, largely wrong, and you'd be a complete idiot to 
trying to base your base your base 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 anything on on predictions. Well, I should just say that I'm married to a future, book and so. historian. I think she would take issue with your suggestion there. Um, so the answer is no, is it? Yes, I think so. Yes. But uh, anybody else got a, got a comment on that? Does it? Does... Well, I think what's missing for me is the sense that um, we don't just um, look at history; we construct it. And reconstructed because um, we have certain interests that uh, we want to, in some sense, project onto the past. Now, I mean, as you know, someone who studies ancient Greece, I noticed that recently we've talked a lot about celebrity culture in the fifth century BC. Um, you know, uh, artists and actors who made tons of money, effectively being Greek pop stars. And, and so, you know, one could project all that sort of thing. One talks about theatre in ancient Greece being, a, a, you know, socially a social agent of some kind. I mean, all that stuff is our projection to some degree and, and the projection of the Renaissance scholars who brought back the ancient Greek history. So, I mean, in a way, what we're doing is trying to, I think, when, when we talk about history teaching us, it's, it's saying, what will we find in history that we can, we can find in the present as well? And, and just to go back to this question of futurology, I'm reminded that in, in the earliest ancient Greek texts, you're not walking forward into the future. You're being driven backwards into it. So you can see the past, but you cannot see behind you. And I think that's an interesting image to think about. It's not something we so can So you can't really... predict the future, you would say? Well, I suppose you can take a glimpse behind you if you go to, go to yeah. a sort of prophet or a soothsayer. But effectively, the idea of predicting the future, I mean, of course, it's about speculation and um, marketing of um, you know, futurology. Well, there was a Kierkegaard who said we can only understand things looking backwards, but we have to live our lives forwards, something yes, like that. Yes, exactly. We go forward, a, facing backwards. Yes, Surely isn't the point that we can make better decisions in the future if we study the past. And if we look at Absolutely. governments the world over, they take such appalling decisions because they either take a very subjective understanding of the past or they're just plain bloody ignorant of the past. And so, so that's not predicting the future, it's just trying to... And aren't we in our own lives making our decisions based on a good understanding of the past and ourselves and other people? So in that sense, history is important, but not in predicting the future, but in making better informed decisions, either individually Individually or, you know, collectively in government. I don't know. Just a thought. Mm -hmm. So, sorry, expand on Christian. that. Yes. yes. Can we have a microphone over here, please, Christian. Just want to, you know, also what Ed said, you know, journalism is obviously not dead. There is an objective truth. And one of the things that people do look to, to us for is the brand, the credibility, the trust. So as you were saying, you don't look at much tweeting because you don't know who they are. But that's what presumably some of us have built up in every corner of the journalistic world and the photojournalistic world. Luke Delahaye is a very good friend of mine, and he definitely built that up before he turned into art. Um, on the issue of the, of the future, which I think is fundamental, what Chris Parry said about the Balkans, I know a lot about. I lived that war for nine years, or rather for the 90s. And that mythology was fundamental to the extremism and to the perpetuation of the war and to informing our politicians about why it wasn't okay to stop it. They also believed in that mythology. Uh, that the one or other side perpetrated. And therefore, we were told throughout the 90s that, I'm sorry, we can't intervene, we can't stop the genocide in Europe because, oh, it's just ancient history, oh, it's endless ethnic rivalry, etc. You remember that. So maybe it can't predict the future, but it can not just inform the future, but surely it can enable us to caution and teach against that for, for the future. In other words, what's happening in Russia and Crimea right now is the same issue as what, we've, what we witnessed in the Balkans. Mm. If we don't report the truth that that mythology is actually not fully accurate, we will be going on like this for you know, time immemorial. All you have to do is pick up the Financial Times today, and there may be another invasion based on mythology. So I think, actually, this is a really important panel, and the past while not, can actually predict the future and actually can be a bulwark to preventing some of this in the future if we care mm. to actually take this seriously. Uh, can, I just, can I just, yeah, I mean, I endorse yeah, all of that. Well. Obviously, what's happening now in Ukraine and Crimea uh, reminds us of the gentleman's point that 
uh, history can help us make better decisions, but it can also, and I think the Ukrainian situation would be, would have been, it's too late now, but I think it would have been fundamentally eased if we had been more aware of the Russian history of Crimea and of Russia's relations with Ukraine. And among Western leaders wading into the Kiev Maidan uh, movement, there was no sensibility of that whatsoever. And um, that's not to say that, 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 that any of the Russian actions should be condoned, but it is to say that without an understanding of where the Russians are coming from on this, there's no way of involving them in a solution in which they have to be a part. Well, clearly, this will be part of the hopefully diplomacy plan that we do, but I will also point out that it is not true that forever the Crimeans wanted to be part, even in the last 20 years. If you just look at the, uh, if you just look at the, the poll numbers, there was a referendum yeah, in 91. Ref exactly. They wanted to be and independent and part of Ukraine. Yeah, of course. It's not clear. In the late 90s, in the late 90s, 25% only voted to, 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 to want to be with Russia, although 60% of Crimea is ethnically Russian. So there's so much mythology. Of course. And we but believe it. Part of and the we conflict. believe it and we continue and we let them believe it. It is really dangerous. But the mythologies are part of the conflict. They're certainly part of the language that the Russians use. Uh, and unless we can decode the language at least, and preferably also find a way of speaking to the Russians that allows for their mythologies while disarming the consequences of them, then we don't have a chance. I think there's an, uh, another question there. Yeah, um, my question is more, is this an, isn't this more about accessibility? I mean, we're talking 20 years ago, 10 years ago, people weren't able to write their own history. Now we have Twitter, we've got Facebook, we've got all these social medias. It becomes a lot more difficult, not only to verify sources, but also to kind of move the discussion forward because our understanding may not be what we thought it was 20 years ago or 10 years ago in this situation. So then what so, you mean, there's more opportunities for mythologizing? Yeah, absolutely. And isn't that kind of more dangerous because actually... You know, we stop seeing it from our perspective and try to see it from somebody else's perspective, from the people that live on the ground. So it's more about accessibility, I think. Well, that's, that is the case, isn't it? Because we have fewer filters now. Yes, but I think I think the point that uh, Christian made is still very important. That there will be brands, there will be there will be trusted sources, there will be people who build up credibility over, over time. Um, you've got, I mean, the, the, yeah. I was yeah. say, Hang on one second. Yeah. I'm just addressing the point that Chris Parry made about predicting the future. If you're taking the past out of your prediction mechanism, what else are you using? As simple as that. Well, that has to go back to Chris, yeah. I think. She, what, what does one use if you take the past out? Um, well, I have to tell you that, uh, I mean, you've got to take the word prediction out of it. It, it. It's more like quantum computing than calculation. It's more like correlation of information. Um, you, you put together trends. Um, I have that's to what we you do put as together trends too. using past data. Exactly. Can I finish my sentence? Sorry. <laughs> Please do. Um, uh, okay. Um, the issue is that long-term trends actually arrive in the present and they germinate in the future. And if you're able to correlate those, uh, then you get a reasonable balance of probabilities into the future. I'm not talking about statistical. I'm, I come from an arts background, not from a science background. Um, now, the reason I have a business doing this is I've used this process to actually tell you when the financial crash is going to happen within a month, tell you about the Arab Spring, uh, and I'll tell you now, not as a prediction, but as a probability, that we're going to have a punch-up in the South China Sea soon. Um, and that comes from cultural, historical, technological trends that have come from the past predominantly and then stretch out in a cone of futures uh, into the future. There's no single future. There's a number of futures that stretch out. And what I do is attach probabilities based on historical experience uh, and culture uh, on those things. And that's the best you can do. I agree with you. You can't predict the future. I can tell you that there will be racing at Cheltenham on Saturday. I'm confused. I, I so you do use the past then? Yes, of course. Yeah, of course. I, I, I totally refute the idea. But it's the word predict that's the issue. You cannot predict the future. There's no question you can do that. But what you can do... So, you, so actually, just to go back, is this a, 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 to the semantics of this, so the, the, the past can inform the future but not predict it? Uh, it can, Anthony Selden put it very succinctly. He, it sets to the left and right an arc of what can happen in the future. It's the Sherlock Holmes thing. Once you've excluded the impossible, everything else is possible. So you should consider those things in the future. And, and companies, banks, anybody else that wants to deal with risk in the future needs to set the bounds of that risk 
the left and right of arc. And the past is the only guide to that. We have no other experience to, to, to build on um, because we're human beings. We've had 2,000 years of civilized experience. And as I think you hinted earlier on, uh, you know, there's nothing new under the sun, actually. It's I'm the context by, that changes. I'm surrounded it, by people who are saying you're contradicting yourself. I, okay, fine, but it's early in the morning and, you know, <laughs> it was a late night last night, so come on, you know, we're all human. Sorry, um, sorry. But the fact of life is, what I'm saying to you is, you can't predict the future, let me be plain, but you can put probabilities onto the future. Um, you know, if you want to talk about the Ukraine later, please see me in the bar. Uh, okay? <laughs> okay, actually, I think we're going to come back to another, because yeah. Kate didn't uh, get a chance to answer yeah. one of the earlier questions. I was actually, I just said to Kirsty that I felt I hadn't given you a proper answer, and I'm sorry. So I wanted to come back, because I think your point is important about social media. What, uh, what I think is happening at a much smaller scale when people are telling their own stories using social media, people who aren't big brands, people, people who are developing very small followings or have small circles, is that they're telling their stories. And they're using those as, as, as new literary media simply because they're using words. Uh, and to go back to this, this issue of mythologies that everybody else has been talking about, uh, what I would argue is what I, what I do is I don't just study history, I study literature. Um, and we've, he we've heard about... Uh, the gentleman over here said, I come from an arts background, not a science background. We've heard about splitting all of these disciplines. And I think we have to bring all of these disciplines together. So um, I, I would argue that to understand the, the future, you have to actually be a literary critic and you have to read the novels to understand Twitter. Um, you have to look at how people shape their stories, how small communities develop narratives, little echo chamber narratives, but definitely narratives. But you need the data as well. And all economic historians have been using economic data to predict the future since forever. Any other questions here before we... Yep. Hi, I'd just like to uh, come back really to uh, uh, the theme for a second on the past predicting the future or the past helping us with the future and uh, talking specifically about professional um, uh, artists in the broadest sense and the role of patrons in that. What can we learn from the past patrons. for the future from uh, patronage, particularly when we're looking at a marketplace where you know, everybody is an artist, everybody has access to an audience but not everybody has uh, professional skills. How do we bridge that with patrons? Are we seeing a return to patrons, do you think? Either of you? That's a tricky one, isn't it? Um... Yes, I think we are. Um, and I think we're moving towards uh, a, ski, a system, for example, in theatre in, in London that is much more American, that involves flashy philanthropy. I'm not sure if I should say this, but apparently there's a waiting list to be a donor, at, to be a high-level donor at the Donmar Warehouse. Because it's that cool, and it's that cool theatre. It's hard to become one. Um, and this is obviously something we've seen at the Old Vic with Kevin Spacey flying in and bringing in his New York charm. So we're moving back to that. Um, I think what the past teaches us about that is that long-term relationships are good. If you take someone... that You need a patron when you're young, and that's about talent spotting. And obviously there are problems with that. Uh, look at all the young men who slept with wealthy aristocrats when they were writing their Elizabethan plays. Uh, that's what you have to watch out for. Um, but patronage can work. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> patronage, probably the great, the great authors, the ones I love, negotiated that and had patrons. I think it's um, just look, taking photography. It's much, much harder today to make a living as a, as a photojournalist. I mean, in, in it, I mean, I grew up in the '60s and '70s, and those. Then, every weekend, you'd get the Sunday Times magazine, which would sponsor a photographer to spend months, if you like, on some documentary project. And that simply doesn't happen today because it's so easy for anybody to publish anything on the net. So I think that it's much more important today this this role of patron. I suppose that. We could be seen as patrons, in a sense. Um, yeah. We um, we had to decide whether we wanted to have a completely demotic prize, if you like, open to everybody. But you, I, we couldn't handle that. So we have a uh, a, a nominations process, rather like the Turner Prize. So we have about 270 nominators. This is as democratic as it gets uh, around around the world, from 66 countries, um, um, all over the six continents. And they recommend photographers, and the ones that come onto our shortlist, actually, um, a number of them have been young, um, early career uh, newspaper photographers. Often, um, have 
had their careers immeasurably um, enhanced since they came onto that so, so, so prizes are a new form of it's it's, it's it's crucial and and, I, and yeah. what I, what we see i mean even though we had 650 nominations in the last in the current cycle i mean photographers who are simply nominated will use that as a way of yeah. promoting their own um, yeah. brand okay. if you like yeah, so, yes, and then crucial. that's the question i would endorse those comments i think we will see um, a growing reliance on patronage because I think the, if you look at the long 150 years um, the business cycle of the artist has sort of come to an end where it's possible to make uh, for, for the majority to make money in the free market and um, you know in, 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 in writing certainly you know there's a lot of diminishing returns journalism is also a law of diminishing returns, but for other reasons. And I think that, 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 therefore, that cycle that was really created by the expansion of, of international markets in the 19th century, yeah, is, is finishing. And therefore, we will go back to something like the situation many artists found themselves in the early 19th century of sort of chopping and changing between being able to make money in the market but also increasingly dependent on patrons... To, if only to give them the time to create something new. Maybe, maybe it's an obligation because of the huge disparities or the vast fortunes that have been made in... in, in maybe it is. Yeah. It's absolutely sort of an obligation. Years, is what, you know, what, what, do these, what should these, these, these billionaires do with their money? Sorry, I, spe I specifically... And I'm, I'm, uh, if we move into corporate patronage mm. um, today, what could corporate patrons learn from the lessons of historic individuals and I think your answer of mm. long term get them young mm. uh, brackets and sleep with them which is the <laughs> bit that I've taken up um, is there anything beyond that do, do you think corporate patrons can learn from the lessons of the past the thing with patronage is, is that artists always kick against it and then that kicking is part of the creativity isn't it because they're always trying to break out of the mould and do something fresh um, the problem of patronage where it's corporate and it feels laissez-faire because basically they just want their brand name slapped on the National Theatre or whatever then the problem with that is does that um, prevent people doing the kicking and becoming slightly more conformist and slightly less risk um, inclined because they don't want to upset promote promoters and patrons who are bored by what they put on. So in a sense um, patronage is sort of, as a straitjacket is quite quite amused I should think. Patronage in a loose form might have its dangers that I'd, maybe we're not aware of yet because we're only, I, think, I do think we're entering into an, an era when it will become more uh, more, more important. Um, I, I would just agree that there is a kicking back, and I spend a lot of my time talking to people about how the theatre is supported and, and philanthropy in the theatre. And when it comes to culture, I've had the number of directors who've said to me, "Well, because X are sponsoring me, I'm going to try and push it as far as I can with my programming this this season." And what I would say to the corporate patrons is just let them do it. The modern examples right now is Pierre Omidia, the billionaire co-founder of eBay, who's just provided $250 million to Glenn Greenwald and whoever they, they might you know, attract to start their own news site online. I just wondered whether you had any thoughts about you know, where that might lead and is that good, bad or indifferent? Yes, because we're seeing this increasingly in journalism, aren't we? I think the, the Guardian's Australian edition is also... Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean just obviously he jumped on the fact of the WikiLeaks explosion. Not, yeah, I guess it's WikiLeaks and the NSA and all the rest of it. Um, but what else is he going to produce yeah. to justify that 250 million? I mean, I find it... Genuinely interesting, and I, I don't know what the answer is. Could this be the, the way forward is. in photojournalism, patronage, and not lost the prizes, but, you know, uh, that sort of patronage from, you know, billionaires putting money into journalism? Like Jeff Bezos, for example, mm. buying the Washington Post. I mean... Yeah, that's exactly mm. it. Yeah. Mind you, is that yeah. new? Because very rich men it's have new, owned though. newspapers for a long time. This is one individual. Yes. That's, and this is patronage. Mm. That's the new the Washington Post. With Jeff Bezos, but Omidia is investing an entire news operation in one person. That's classic patronage, right? 
Yes, but presumably his idea is that Glenn, Glenn Greenwell will set up some sort of news organisation. I just wonder whether patronage, in this sense, is another form of, of selectivity, which, in a sense, we need, because there's a bit of a paradox with the idea that we have more documentation than ever before. I mean, all these Twitter, all these electronic things that are there, they're all there now. I mean, a historian, an ancient historian, is blessed because there's very little <laughs> documentary evidence, so you can actually create a story. So what story are you going to carve out of this, these trillions of bits of documentary evidence? I mean, what is history now... You know, it's not just the sum of all tweets, is it? Uh, but, you know, somebody, in a sense, has to carve a path through it. I'm not saying they have to, but that's what's going to happen, that uh, uh, instead of you know, having historians looking back on the 20th century and saying, you know, let, let's find some... Actually, in a way, this is what historians do now. They go back and they find some obscure area of, you know, women who wrote plays in Elizabethan times, for example, and they say, well, now, now history is actually looking different as a result. Well, how do you do that? You know, you select... And I just wonder whether this is the new form of historical selectivity that is, is upon us. We will be looking back at Pierre Omidyar and his, you know, his news organisations because that's, they're the ones who are going to make the noise. Well, bless names, not numbers, because on the, on the coach coming out here, I met someone who has got a computer system that entraps, catches all, everything in the sort of internet sphere, in chat rooms, on Twitter, etc., and, and sort of find some way of... Uh, selecting keywords or whatever, and that reminds me of an idea that um, Memorial, the Russian Human Rights Organization, put, put to me as a research thing to try to do um, a history of a particular moment, particular moment in important moment in politics in Russia, and just try and capture everything that was being said about it at one. You know, so you do a history of a moment. From every single... I mean, in a way, it would be Michelet's dream, you know, the 19th century historian who wants to do total history. Well, that would be. I mean, if we could get the technology, you, you might find a way of doing a sort of total history. But what was the complete sum of expressions of ideas and opinions, fears and all the rest of it about one particular moment? It didn't necessarily have any influence on how things, were, how things panned out, but it would be, it would be fun to do, anyway. Okay. Uh, this is actually something that I spend a lot of my time with 16th century historians talking about. It's not just the question of how will we analyse the 21st century with all its tweets. Um, we already, because of computers, have huge new anxieties of completeness when we look at, at uh, past documentation, uh, because computers and digital archiving is giving us access to more as, as individuals, which also makes us feel more pressure that we've got to read it all. Um, so one of the people who I most admire is Lisa Jardine, who's now at UCL, which is where I study. And one of the things that she teaches all of us um, is that big data is, uh, whoever you are, big data is whatever your current system can't already handle. Now, as a PhD student, it used to be the case that you would find, you'd get whole, permission to do one archive that had maybe 400 letters, and you would analyse all those letters, and that would be your PhD. Um, now, and you do that because you were physically next to it. You couldn't go, you couldn't see other ones on computers. Now I have access to 20 different archives, each with 400 letters in my PhD. There is pressure for my PhD to, to deal with all of them because I have access to them, so why not? So what we're doing is analysing metadata. People have started, uh, whole PhDs are being written on letter networks where you run, um, someone will have catalogued not the content of the letter but who it was written to. Um, uh, who, who the correspondents are, and then you can dig up um, anyone who you haven't heard of before who's suddenly receiving 20 times as many letters as you expected. The computer is telling you that, than you expected. And then you go when you actually go back to the archive and you dig up those actual letters. Um, but all of those computer anxieties are, are coming up. And in one sentence thing, I should answer Christine's comment about Glenn Greenwald, uh, which is uh, history tells us that patronage always goes wrong when you only patronise one person relationship gets very intense. If I can predict the future in one way today, I will say that that relationship with Greenwald is going to go wrong in the way that Ludwig of Bavaria's relationship with Wagner went wrong and all of those. Patronise uh, patronize five people. Be a patron to five people rather than one. There's a question. Just a point about the... Is this all? Uh, big data. We do, and it's also a point about the patronage. We do have an organisation, an institution in Britain that gathers together all of these tweets and all of these emails and all of these texts. It's called the British Library. Huh? And it relies uh, on densely networked relationships, not with um, uh, Wikipedia, but with British universities who are funded to do these things. 
including big data. And if you look at the CEO of the BL, uh, you know, she's relying on um, the Bill Gates, she's relying on private patronage, but she's also relying on public funding. So we haven't heard much about institutions in this debate, and it remains key, I think. Yes. Thank you. But I, I think nobody yet has mentioned here, I mean, one of the characteristics of the internet, I know this, this is, is that you can, it's, at the same time as it's becoming more open and, 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 and free, it's becoming more balkanised and that, so that you can follow only the commentators or the blogs or the websites that reinforce your own prejudices. And, you know, the internet is identify, I mean, what you're doing all the time. And then so you get fed back your own prejudices. So this is, and so that's why we need still the Times and these, um, if you like, more objective um, um, mediators and aggregates, which, who, or validators, if you like, where there is a spread of opinion. That's, so you read things that you don't agree with. I think I'm going to wrap up in a second, but have we got any other comments? Somebody got the yeah, yeah this is just a quick question to Orlando Fagis, if I may. Yeah. Uh, just to speculate, when and why did we, did, did at least European civilization develop this historical sense? Because it hasn't always been the case. So, I mean, did something happen? Sorry? A general historical sense. Yes, I mean, the importance of, as it were, locating ourselves in, in historical time. I mean, did, did something happen in the 18th century or so? Well, a historical sense goes, goes to the ancient Greeks. Um, Absolutely. Is, part of, is, is the basis of history. But I think in the 19th there is century... There's something special. There's, there's something special about yes. the 19th century national storytelling. Uh, it's part of the whole romantic age of um, you know, nation-building. And I think that's what increasingly we see... You know, we do see it on, 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 the, on the stage in opera. We see it... Um, you know, as as a draw for audiences, they want a drama that will, if not be their direct national story, as it is sometimes in Verdi, but some echo of it um, that you know relates to political ideas they're having at the time, and and so they can they can identify with other people's national stories as an echo of their own, and that's an interesting aspect of the 19th century too, the cosmopolitanism of it all. But that that yeah, I think that's an, a 19th century phenomenon of of nation building, essentially that particular type of historical consciousness. Well, I think on that note, that's been a very interesting discussion. I'd like to thank uh, my panel: Stephen Barber, Orlando Fayez, and Kate Morgan. This podcast was produced by Sarah Peters for Editorial Intelligence. With thanks to Vodafone, FT Weekend, CNN, GQ and all the partners and participants who made and make Names Not Numbers possible. Thank you for listening.